So welcome to Labrie. My name is Clark Scheibe, working with uh, my wife, Julia, and my colleague, Liz Snell. You're not lecturing next week, are you? Next week, we have uh, Brittany Silverta. She's going to be speaking on prayer. So I encourage you to come for that. So this week, as you know, is on racism. Where I want to start is just um, celebrate Juneteenth. Today is June 19th. You may not be aware, but June 19th, uh, anyone know what that is? Uh, we, there were messengers that went to announce on June 19th, 1865, the freedom of slaves. Now, the Emancipation Proclamation was January, uh, went into effect January 1st, 1863, but it wasn't, uh, there was no, by no means the war was won. And so it wasn't official until June 19th, 1865 is the day where some uh, government officials got to uh, Texas and declared freedom. So celebrations in the streets, and this is celebrated throughout uh, the U.S. as Freedom Day. So this was one of the reasons why I wanted to kind of push forward a lecture on racism, um, even though I felt quite behind. Yep. Anybody. Yeah. But it is a, it's a special day for African-Americans, um, particularly those whose ancestors were enslaved in the U.S. system. And so Juneteenth, happy Juneteenth. Now, I'm going to be speaking on racism, but this is no way exhaustive. And, uh, but what I just want to do is I want to give brief sketches to orient the discussion. I'm not any expert. And in fact, I've been very humbled and very convicted by all that I've read. And so I'm trying to just give some brief sketches in order to give some clarity to the confusion of the different voices and of the different hopes and expectations out of all this, particularly amongst the protests and the cries for justice. Now, these are brief sketches, but they are not meant to be to simplify complex issues. It's just to simplify or create basic foundations for us to know where people are coming from. So when you're reading resources, you're looking on the internet, you're hearing the TV, you can kind of have a sense of what's being said, either in the church or in the, on the TV. As I said, I'm no expert. And if I make any mistakes, please help me and correct me. Even if you discover that I've said something and you find fact checked it and and say, well, that's not exactly accurate, but I've tried to be as accurate as possible. And there's some things I'll highlight, some things I won't highlight. So if you think that there's other things that I should have highlighted, please do. And I think that uh, I'm really trying to set this up for discussion today. I think that this will be a really good discussion. <clears throat> Last thing, I don't usually say this, but in this context, it is important. Um, I'm a white male and I grew up in the deep South. And I saw very explicit racism and I saw very implicit racism uh, growing up and going to university. And so I grew up Memphis, Tennessee mostly. Actually, uh, grew up in Columbia, Tennessee, 15 miles away from Pulaski. Does anyone know what Pulaski, Tennessee is known for? The origin of KKK. Okay, and so, um, and then I grew up in Memphis. It's a very segregated city. And then I went down to Ole Miss, where our mascot was a plantation owner uh, until recently. <laughs> so, so I saw uh, not only symbols around me, but I also benefited from it. 
So I'm coming at this issue with that kind of background, but I've been living in Canada for 20 years. I do think that Canadians think that they're not racist. And uh, I think that there is a lot of racism in Canada. What do I mean by uh, racism? Well, that's part of the discussion. That's a part of the debate. People are trying to redefine racism. So some people see racism as an individual act of uh, bigotry toward another person and thinking them inferior. And it's an act and it's an individual doing an individual act. And if an individual does a consistent amount of acts, they're considered a racist. That's an old definition and that's going out of style. In fact, it's being questioned and criticized. Now you also see racism, but that you also see racism in customs by the symbols around us. And that is a part of what people are talking about and also what you call systemic injustice or systemic racism. Now systemic racism means that a group of people think that they are superior or inferior to other groups and, uh, and they create ideas and policies out of this. this. And so that is a more systemic definition of racism. Now I'm going to get into that further in a minute. But where I would like to start is with how this all started having a discussion recently. Uh, America is having a crisis of meaning. And because they're under this pressure of polarization, uh, pandemic, and panic. It has been showing up in regards of gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, of an environment, but most currently is going through race. Uh, these are all kind of bound up together, but it's interesting how this all started and you could feel the things change within the last two, three weeks. Uh, and so this is very new to a lot of us, um, even though protests aren't not new, but the, 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 the amount of protesting, the size of protesting in the U.S. is something we haven't really seen since the 60s. We saw some protests after Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin were shot and Black Lives Matter began. There were some protests, but nothing where it was so sustained um, uh, through so many cities and also a lot of white participation is what we're seeing now. So <clears throat> what happened is um, you had COVID creating this pandemic uh, and people were having a hard time breathing because, and that was one of the main symptoms. And so they were being ushered into these hospitals, put on respiratory, um, respiratory systems, ventilators, sorry, ventilators. And so there was a real fear and people were huddling inside. However, there was a disproportionate amount of African-Americans dying because of COVID. Now, what they discovered is not only is there a tend to have some health issues, uh, but also close proximity. Also, you had uh, where a lot of African-Americans were essential workers. They had to go to the grocery stores. And so the more lower paying jobs, the more blue collar jobs. And there were a lot of African-Americans going into those jobs. And so this is the theory of why so many African-Americans disproportionately were being affected and dying. Uh, and so they were being affected 2.4 times more than white Americans. Well, in the midst of this, you have Ahmaud Aubrey, 
who was shot, a, a black jogger who kill, was killed by these two white men claiming that he was a criminal. And there was no proof of that. And so it was a citizen's uh, arrest and murder. Then you have uh, Brianna Taylor shot. Uh, there was the police charged in and shot her dead. Most famously, you had uh, the video, eight plus minutes, of Derek Chauvin having his knee upon the, the neck of George Floyd, the people asking him to not do this, and he says, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And of course, and then at the very end, he cries out for his mother and he stops breathing. And uh, so they end up having to call the ambulance, he's rushed to the hospital, and he dies in hospital. That became a viral video. And, you know, there, there were these hashtags called I run with Maud, uh, about Maud Aubrey. But it didn't stick as well as hashtag I can't breathe, which really tied together the pandemic, the anger of African-Americans dying disproportionately, and, uh, and this man who is suffering yet another uh, brutal police attack or uh, killing. And so it was these, these pieces that were coming together at this moment and, and caused a stir and caused protests at a mass level. In fact, uh, so much has been happening that people didn't know how to even, how to write about it. And one, my favorite uh, title of any article is called, uh, The Story Has Gotten Away From Us. As journalists, they want to know how the narrative unfolds and how history is unfolding. And this man said that his, the story has gotten away from us. Uh, and so it was just laying out what happened. And it was almost a, an exhausting list of what happened just in this year. Just this year. I lectured in February, and the main talk was about Greta Thunberg. And that was only a couple months ago. And so even when you talk about, I haven't seen you for six months, it's probably only been a month and a half. You know, because it's just pandemic time is just long, long time. And so this has put a lot of pressure on the states and has brought this to bear. So in this moment, I believe that it's a moment of reflection on, okay, what has brought us to this moment, not just this year, but historically? And what is behind these discussions? I think it is important to reflect on black history, uh, and that's what I will be doing. And then I'm going to be talking about four responses to, uh, to the protest of what is being called systemic racism. So I'm gonna talk about black history in the US and then four responses to protest. Now, there's a lot of people who say, well, it's better to not dredge up the past. I think it's important for Christians uh, to think about this, that we must think that sin is not simply what an individual does but something that is inherited through generations and generations. The sins of their fathers will be laid against them. Now, I was reading 2 Kings 15, verse 28, and then also verse 34. Now, just listen to this. <clears throat> this is about Pekah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which had made Israel to sin. It's interesting because Jeroboam lived 
hundreds of years prior. So Pekah is not being blamed for his own sins, but for imitating the sins of his father, not living out of the shadow of the sins of his father. And then you have Jotham, who is the next king. And it said in verse 34, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. So it's almost like a spiritual heritage. Nevertheless, verse 35, nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on all the high places. And so there was this mixture, a syncretism between faithful worship and idolatry. And so you, you have this image in the Bible that sin is not just what the individual does before God, but something that they inherit and that they must make a choice in how they live in that society. I think that's apropos for us. And so um, I want us to understand our history um, or at least understand black history in the U.S. in order uh, to understand what's being said uh, or understood, what's being discussed and how that's happened. What are the sins of our father? I know that we're in Canada. I know a lot of people are not in the U.S. Um, who are watching this call. But I think it's, it implies all of us. It implicates all of us in how we think about this. And so what's happening to our brothers and sisters in the U.S.? We should also think about how it might reflect on us and how we might act in our own situations. Okay, so this is the outline of black history in the U.S. And then responses to racism. So those are the four, and that's, that's my simple outline. That's it. The four responses, the first two are secular. The, the last two are Christian, something that you might find in the church. So uh, critical race theory will be my first response uh, after I do the black history. Then black conservatism is quite a bit different than just good old conservatism uh, because it looks about um, how, how the black community might relate to uh, conservatism in the free market. And then uh, the simple gospel and then the whole gospel. Okay, so let's jump into the black history uh, in the U.S., and then um, we'll talk about uh, those four responses. So we could start with where most people start with race-based chattel slavery. Now, you could start with Columbus uh, in uh, the 1400s, who considered the native people dark-skinned people and felt that they were inferior and primal and not civilized. So you could go as far, far back as, as that. And so we might even think about First Nations. But I'm, I'm looking primarily um, where it starts with African descent, because that's, that's the main issue that the U.S. is having. And it's called race-based chattel slavery, where a person was taken from Africa, there was a commerce, and, uh, and then sold in the U.S. as property, um, as a field laborer usually. And that happened, it started happening in 1619. Well, that happened for a long time until Juneteenth, uh, 1865. So you had a 240 years, 230 years of race-based chattel slavery. Um, but then there was the 13th Amendment that was introduced, and this is what gave them the freedom. However, uh, if you've watched on Netflix 13th, have anyone seen that? Very difficult. Um, it's somewhat uh, 
politically biased, but not too much, I think, but is. Anyway, the point that the film 13th makes and uh, many historians make is that in the 13th Amendment, this amendment that was supposed to free slaves had a loophole. And that loophole is, uh, so the 13th Amendment, as you see it on your screen, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Section two, Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. The loophole there is except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, except as a punishment for crime. And so what they saw is a rise of criminalization. Because what happened is that when the slaves were freed, the slave owners were given reparation for losing their slaves. So however many slaves they lost, their property, the government gave them financial reparation. However, the slaves that were released were not given the promised 40 acres and a mule. And so many of them didn't have land or enough to have land. Some went north uh, where they did have segregation uh, and it was better, but but what ended up happening is that because they didn't have any land, they ended up becoming sharecroppers on people's land. And what happened in slavery is that if there was a slave revolt, then they could use force or something like that to property. And this wasn't changing overnight how people saw these um, black men and women. And so uh, they started becoming considered criminals. And there was the rise of criminalization of black Americans. Once the 13th Amendment was applied to them, that once they became criminals, then they no longer had the same rights as they would have had they not been considered criminals. As criminals, what they were enforced to do was to be put on chain gangs and in the fields for free labor. So basically it was a loophole in the South, which were not happy, which they considered the lost cause, and were able to criminalize these African-Americans and put them on chain gangs in order to continue the industry that was at work. The North, lest you think it's innocent, overlooked it because they were, they were making so much money through the cotton industry and they needed that labor and if they didn't have that mass labor then the cotton wouldn't be produced and the north would not make their profit so even though the 13th amendment freed slaves without land and without reparation they were uh, there was a new way that race was adapting toward black americans through this criminalization and so this is where people would even say this is the beginning of police brutality for black Americans. Now, I'm giving all this history as not the authoritative history. This is a sketch of an interpretation of history, and we can get into that. But what happened next, after the 13th minute, is considered black codes. And so Mississippi started something called black codes. And so there were certain rules and laws that applied to black Americans, otherwise known as Jim, uh, Jim Crow laws, and, uh, and it was criminalizing any kind of behavior if they were not, you know, um, acting according to, uh, to these codes. Now, Mississippi started these codes, but they were soon adopted by the South 
and the North once again overlooked them. This was also matched by the rise of the KKK, uh, which is, um, there was three waves of it, post-Civil War, right after the Civil War, but then the height of it was in the 1920s. And this was also the height of lynching. And so uh, KKK people, if they, um, if they felt, a civilian felt that uh, an African-American had gotten out of line uh, or even suspicious activity, they would lynch these uh, men and women. There was over, I think, 10 million people who supported the KKK. Um, their primary aim was, I think it was prohibition, but also um, their being against immigrants and Catholics. Almost all the Confederate statues were installed at this time throughout the South at the behest of um, by um, KKK uh, groups, uh, white supremacy groups. But lynching became something that was considered uh, a bit awful once pictures started showing up, pictures of black bodies hanging, and they thought, okay, this is enough is enough. Uh, but then they started segregating society where colored people could drink from this water fountain, um, they could go to these schools. And, and so what they were doing is they're segregating them into certain areas. Because what are we going to do with this kind of criminal, this uh, uncivilized race? They're free, they're uncivilized, and so they were segregated. Now, there was something called redline, and this is in the 40s, 50s, or well, 50s and 60s primarily. But uh, there's something called redlining. Does anyone know what redlining is? So redlining, you see here, Oakland, you see these boxes of red, red areas of a city. Now, what was happening is FDR had signed where people, post-World War II, where people could get homes at very uh, low loans in order to build equity and build the economy. Well, banks had these maps. Uh, what you might think is where are safe loans and where are the risky loans? The green areas were wealthy white people, business businessmen. Uh, and then you have upper middle class white in the blue. And then you would have more lower income white. And then the redlining is the poor areas, the people of immigrants and people of color in black community. And so a black person could, would want to come and try to start having a house and the banks would not loan to them. And white people started having generational wealth through equity where black Americans were being redlined. And so these were becoming the slums, the ghettos. So you'll hear a lot about redlining and, the, and you just see that there's a perpetuity of a lack of equity and value. And so, um, and then of course the civil rights movement, which is all on our minds in the 60s. Now this was really in many ways was a religious revolution. It was a call, particularly through Martin Luther King to see black Americans as equal through the eyes of the constitution and in the eyes of God. And so there was a big push for civil rights. Um, there was some more radicalization like the Black Panthers and black power. Cultural Marxism, critical theory started making its way um, and trying to put down uh, the powers. But Martin Luther King, who became the most persuasive, the leader, was arguing through equality because of the Constitution and of God the Creator. However, people felt that even though there was the, uh, civil, right, uh, the civil Rights Act 
1965, I believe it is, by Lyndon Johnson, racism adapted, that Nixon was elected in 68. And Nixon, one of his platforms was war on drugs. And that started looking into areas that ended up being poor, the redlined areas. What ended up happening is that it reaffirmed that the black race was one that was uh, given to drugs, given to drink, and therefore that's why they were poor. Rather than that poverty was leading to violence and crime and leading to addictions. It's more complicated than that, but then you saw that continuation through through other presidents like Ronald Reagan, just say no, Nancy Reagan, just say no. And then even um, Bill and Hillary Clinton, where Bill Clinton had laws called three strikes, you're out, uh, mandatory minimums. What this ended up becoming is what people would say the beginning of mass incarceration. What was surrounded by this was that there were police suspicion of the poor areas of black Americans and, and Black Americans are a much higher percentage in, in, the, in the jails than there are white Americans, proportionately. It's a complicated story, uh, but ma mass incarceration also affected how prisons were done and how police were hired and how they were trained. And so a lot of people felt that the mass incarceration, which was heavily funded by corporations, because now it's a business, Corrections Corporations of America. Because corporations had profited off how police prisons worked, how, and they were also powerful among lobbying, and so they were able to shape policy, that ended up uh, increasing how many people were being incarcerated. But what it also did is dehumanized the people who were in these prisons, and how police were treating these people. And so a lot of people think police brutality what is not so much a white person hate being racially impelled. They're not being, there's, it's not like this racist desire, but that the system has disfavored, disadvantaged people of color and, and that it has brought violence in these poor areas. Now, there is a guy named John McWhorter, who's a, who is an African-American, and he says that it's, uh, he makes the argument in Quillette that it's online journal, that he doesn't think that it's, you know, that police brutality is simply race-related. So even if you look at George Floyd, he goes, there are just as many stories of George Floyd stories. There is a guy named Tony Tempa, who was who, um, a police officer, African-American, was involved uh, maybe not directly, but was there. And Tony Tempa, the police officer, had his knee on the neck of Tony Tempa for 13 minutes. The guy suffocated and died in Dallas. There are just as many tragic stories are there are of Black Americans dying by police brutality. There are equal amount of stories of um, white Americans dying by police brutality. However, what's that? It's twice as many Blacks as whites. As what? No, no, it's, it's, it's twice as many whites as blacks are treated that way. Right, but so there were... The black population is only 20%. So, well, actually, the exact figures is that there's 1,003 who were killed, 405 were white, 250 were black, 
163 are Hispanic and the rest are other. <laughs> However, what you have is blacks are 12% of the population, but 25% of the murders or the killings. Police, police killing black Americans, even though they only make up 13% of the population, 6% of the male population. <laughs> where whites uh, make up 62% of the population and 31% are killed. And so what's, what you see is that there's higher amount of white people killed by police. However, you have a disproportionate amount of black Americans who are killed by police um, in relation, um, in proportion. And so, uh, but McWhorter is making this argument that well, maybe it's not Raci uh, racial bias of the police, but maybe the system around the police, uh, particularly around poverty, because police are more likely to be called into impoverished places where, because impoverished places has more likely a violent crime. Uh, he says that, uh, that black people have a higher percentage of being arrested for violent crime. And so, uh, so what you have is a lot more interactions between the police and black Americans than you would among police and white Americans. And so that explains the disproportionate, is that because they're living in impoverished areas with violence and not necessarily a racial bias by the police officers. So it makes sense to say, well, maybe there has been a system or a history of race in the US that has led to this type of brutality. And so then you have COVID and George Floyd. Uh, all leading to this moment. And so then you have uh, the rise of Black Lives Matter in a new way. Now, <clears throat> protests are looking surreal these days <laughs> with face masks. Even police officers have masks. It's a pandemic. It doesn't look like they're socially distancing. Um, and yet they're coming out in droves because they're protesting police brutality and uh, racial inequality. And so it makes it an apocalyptic and surreal image. And so it can hide the faces of people who are acting. But what it also hides are the various agendas of the protesters. The protesters are not monolithic. Some are wanting, they are justifiably angry within the black community. And they might be acting out of frustration and anger of years of a brother or a sister being killed or violently um, interacting with the police. And so there's this anger, but also you have, where you have others who are just disturbers. Um, they're looting and trying to create chaos. Uh, and so they can't be seen as the same. And then you have people who are wanting to do peaceful protests. Uh, of course, some people say that peaceful protests do, don't do anything. When we look at protests, Black Lives Matter, people on the streets, the looting, we can't just all lump them together and saying, look, they're just wanting to destroy and we end up falling back into this kind of uh, mentality that Black Americans are criminals and just looking for a free ride. That is not, not at all what we should be thinking and that it is a very complex issue, not only historically, but what's happening even currently um, in our polarized place. And so Angela Davis says, you know, she was, do anyone remember Angela Davis? She was a, um, a radical black feminist 
and involved with the Black Panthers, I believe, at a certain point. And she became a real voice, was put in prison for six years, even though um, I think that her charges were dropped. Can't remember the whole story, but um, she's really been a person that they brought forward. And she says, you know, this is great. I don't know if anything's gonna come out of this. But um, she said, one thing that was great about the civil rights movement is that they had a leader, they had leaders and they were given vision, they were casting vision. And that's what, um, while the Black Lives Matter is mostly, probably doesn't have a leader because it's mostly been led by women and grassroots. And so they don't have uh, particularly people standing up. And black women have played a very strong role in black history, uh, leading civil rights and, um, and challenging things, and even in Black Lives Matter. And so Angela Davis says that it's great that they have this kind of more free form leadership style, and that's maybe why you don't see them, but they haven't cast a vision for society. Like what, what is your view? What do, what do you want to happen? And where do you want society to go? Because you need people to catch the vision if this is gonna have any legs at all. There have been some calls, some people just call for the end of white supremacy, but how does that happen? But here, um, some people are calling particularly for the defunding of police, prison reform, particularly around mass incarceration, bail reform, uh, voting laws or voting regulations, and then also some people are calling for reparations that were never paid. So how are we to engage in this conversation? Hopefully that history gives you a sense of all the kind of things behind, behind this, and it's not just a new moment. Uh, but something that's been brewing for since 1619. And it has emerged again and again. Did you know that there were protests against police brutality in the 20s and in the 40s and in the 60s and now? So this isn't something new. It's the call for um, uh, protests against police brutality is not new. Um, so how are we to engage in this conversation. So I want to look at these four basic orientations to the conversation, four, four attitudes, orientations on how we should think about it and how we should move forward. And as I mentioned, first one I'm going to look at is critical race theory. Second, I'm going to look at black conservatism. Third, the simple gospel. The fourth, the whole gospel. So critical race theory. So I'm going to be looking at Two primary spokespersons. This is a very nuanced kind of theory. This is, needs to be more nuanced and varied than what I'm going to do. I'm just trying to give a basic structure through two people who articulate critical race theory and health. And I'm doing these two people because they are the most popular voices at this time. Uh, and on the left, you have Ibram X. Kindi. And then on the right, you have Robin D'Angelo. Ibram X. Kindi wrote a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And the woman on the right is Robin D'Angelo, who wrote a book called White Fragility, which may be something that you've been hearing about. Now, this is the basic, before I get into kind of their particular views, the basic structure, I talked about this last week on critical race theory, I'm not gonna go into it as detailed as I did last week, but um, you may not have been here last week. <laughs> so I'm just gonna give you bare, bare bones. Basically, it is the belief that race is not an event, but a system. That is what Robin D'Angelo says. I'll talk about what Kindy says later, but, it's this, but he agrees that it's a system, not just an individual. Yes. 
racism, racism, sorry. And that, that this system is a power between groups, between those who are oppressors and those who are oppressed. So it's not about, Robin DiAngelo says, it's not about if you're a good person or a bad person to know if you're a racist. You can be a good person and a racist. Um, she's saying that because she's saying it's not about your individual act, but your participation in a system that privileges you. And so you have the basic dynamics of oppressor and oppressed. An oppressor, and what you are is, uh, if you are a part of the oppressor class, you tend to have certain aspects. You, you're male, or you're white, you're straight, you're cisgendered, fertile, or rich. Those are just a few. There's many, many. And so this is analysis, an analysis of how people fit into this power relationship. The oppressed, if you're gay, transgendered, non-binary, female, a person of color or black, poor or infertile. Those are other ways of being oppressed. And so where do you fit in this scale? Are you female? Well, then you're oppressed by, by maleness. If you're gay, you're, you're, being, you're being oppressed by straightness because these are the people who have had the strength around um, developing policy and ideas in society and customs. The whole determination between oppressor and oppressed is who has the power and where do you fit into it? Does language benefit you? Does policy benefit you? Does custom benefit you? That will tell you about where you fit. So what's the solution? Critical theory doesn't just see itself as an analytical tool to try to understand society, but it, itself the solution. And so the solution, to put it very bluntly, is to suppress the oppressor to free the oppressed. The oppressed doesn't have policy. It doesn't have custom. It doesn't have even language to its benefit. And so how is it going to be able to have a power uh, a seat at on the table where they too can make decisions. Well, if, if you have a black American walk to a table full of, imagine a black woman coming to a table where there are 10 white businessmen, she would feel quite helpless in that situation. Maybe she thinks about, well, I better dress right. I might want to dress kind of whitish. My hair is straight. I dress, I look up. And I speak very professionally, very academically. And so kind of have to be whitish in order to pass in through, uh, through the system that has been favored toward whites. That's the idea. And so Kendi describes, uh, so I'm gonna look at their, what basic ideas from their books. Kendi says that you are either racist or anti-racist. There is no in between. Racist, are people who are looking for ideas and policies that benefit one group over others. Um, and so it creates a racial hierarchy. Or even if you think of yourself as less than another, then you're being racist. So a black person, if the black person thinks that they're less than a white person and they feel the inferior, then they're being racist. So you have to remove this idea of being good or bad. That's not the important point. And Kendi would say that these are acts, that you are having a racist act and an anti-racist act, and, there's, and you're perpetually in this movement. And so you might have a racist action, racist action, anti-racist action, anti-racist action, anti-racist. And so you're constantly fluctuating. And he goes, an anti-racist is a person who's looking, working for ideas and policies that are 
for racial equity. One of the difficult points about Kendi is that he doesn't give a lot of practical advice on how and what that looks like. There's a vagueness of what does it mean to pursue racial equity in policy. Oftentimes it means that, that there has to be a bias toward blackness in order to make reparations in society to bring equity. D'Angelo says her book is called White Fragility. Now, white fragility is this notion is that when white people bring up the notion of, or when people bring up the notion of racism, white people get really uncomfortable. They get irritated. They get a little embarrassed. They get a little frightened. They might even get angry. And she goes, that's because that's white fragility. Because once you start discussing racism and saying that white people are the problem in society, that they've been privileged, that once you start discussing it, it disempowers their whiteness. It puts them on their back feet. They can't, they can't make the policy. They can't make the law. They, um, they're not, if they're not in control of speech, then they start feeling very, um, what is it when you lose your balance? You lose your equilibrium. Now, she is a person who holds anti-bias training for corporations and universities. Um, and she was a big speaker at Evergreen State College, which I'll bring up in a moment. But she was the one that really says that it's not about being a good or bad person. In fact, you can be a nice person and be very racist by the way that you talk. Maybe your tone is patronizing. It's important for a white person when they're in a discussion with a black person, uh, because they've been privileged, it's better for the white person to defer to the black person, that they need to express their ignorance to defer and to make sure that they minimize themselves. One article was expressing in her book, I watched her speak for an hour and a half and then some other speeches on her books. I hadn't read her book, but someone wrote in her book, talked about her book and said that, she says that if, if you're in racial reconciliation or anti-bias, that white women should not cry because in the myth, because it might be offensive to those black Americans who have truly suffered and that they need to comport themselves in order to not override the process that black Americans need to go through in order to find equity. And so at all moments, a white person needs to diminish their whiteness. Whiteness is a problem because of the way it has benefited people. And so they need to be careful in how they speak. Now, you might think about this, like uh, there's a guy named Eric Thomas, he wrote an article for Elle magazine, and he said, in, his title is, It Does Not Matter If You Are Good. And what he's talking about, okay, what, as black Americans, we're, supposed to, we're taught to be nice so that we don't get police suspicious um, uh, of us. And so we're always being polite, we're tiptoeing around. And so he talks about how Oscar Jimenez, the reporter for CNN, was reporting and ended up getting arrested on film even though he wasn't doing anything and the white reporters nearby were not arrested um, even though Jimenez will let go later on with no charges. He also speaks about George Floyd or Christian Cooper, the black gay man that was mar um, walking in New York Central Park and did y'all see this viral video? There was, I uh, can't remember her name, but she was a woman on the phone. Her dog was being unleashed and her dog was running around and this black man says, you're supposed to have your dog on the leash. And she was refusing to do it. And this is during the pandemic. 
So he has some dog treats. I don't know why he has dog treats. But uh, he's offering dog treats to this dog to, um, so that this dog might come to him so that he can kind of help her leash it. She gets upset. And at that moment, he starts recording. And she says, I'm going to call the police. She's trying to walk close to him. She, he goes, get away from me, get away from me because of COVID. And, uh, and she goes, I'm going to call the police and say that an African-American man is assaulting me. So she calls on the phone and saying, please come. This man, this black man is being aggressive toward me and please help. And she repeats it three times, becoming hysterical by the end. And then she hangs up and he says, thank you. And then he stopped recording and then he posted it on Facebook. This woman lost her job very quickly, but you can see that there is this, she was using the system to maintain power over him because she wanted to keep her dog loose. And Kendi says that people are racist, not because they hate people of color um, throughout history, it's because they love themselves. It's out of self-interest people are racist, uh, which is interesting. So what might we see good about this? I think that it's really helpful to see that um, racism doesn't have to just be individual acts of goodness or bad people. That if I'm a nice person, then maybe I still could be racist. There are systems and structures that benefit one and others. And so I think that there uh, is one African-American described it as like, it's like dropping a, a pebble in the lake. And that initial pebble ripples out. And that what has happened is that through time, uh, the ripples of racism have rippled through society. It has adapted, but it has affected them without knowing it. We can see this with um, the establishment of generational wealth. For instance. Or you might say, um, uh, example of my father, but they had 150 acres, something like that, in Whiteville, uh, which sat next to Brownsville. There was a black man who was wanting to buy a 40-acre piece of land next to the land of his property, and it was going to depreciate the value of his property and depreciate the, his neighbor's properties. So the guy from the land commission told my father, who knew all the leaders in the city, and said, you need to buy that land unless you want your land to depreciate. And so he ended up buying that land. Uh, so you can see that there are systems in place that benefit some over others, even though this man obviously had saved his money and wanted to go and probably farm. And so he probably had to buy another piece of land somewhere else, but maybe how many obstacles did he have? So I think that just moving racism beyond just the individual is important, though I don't want to, dis to diminish the individual act. Also, um, I think that it's really good with critical race theory of calling changes in the structures of reality. Consider, how are we to think about symbols? Say of Confederate statues or the Confederate flag. Now, this isn't a policy. It's not a personal act. How are people represented in society? This is more than just a memory of cultural history or of a state rights. It's a memorialization. It's a memorial of a certain attitude. And so this is Robert E. Lee, Confederate, the Confederate leader, uh, military leader, and uh, in the middle of Richmond. What kind of representations of black people do we have in society? I mean, I went to the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, and it's in one of the poorer areas. 
Uh, it is at the Lorraine Motel where he was shot, so that makes sense. But you have to think, where are the examples? And so what is being said just in custom? And so that's why a lot of people are wanting to uh, take down Confederate statues. That's why people are calling for the change of the Confederate flags, because it represents white supremacy. Now, this is a long discussion, and we can return to it later if you like. But the question is, is like, how do our symbols in society represent either whiteness or blackness? And if you haven't noticed or haven't really thought about it, then they would say, well, then that's because you've been privileged. You haven't had to think about it. But imagine you are a black American and you drive around and all the statues you see are of white Americans. It makes you think, particularly ones of the Confederacy, which fought for state rights, but state rights in order to enslave Africans. I'll keep moving on to concerns. So the people in the background are from Evergreen State College. I'll talk about them in a minute. But just some concerns I have is of critical race theory. One, it isn't just seen as an analytical tool, but it, you know, it becomes like a religious disposition where there is shaming. You know, there was, a, 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 I mentioned this to some people here, that in Canada, in Montreal, there were two high school students, girls, who wore blackface and rapped to a song and posted it on Facebook. We do not know how old this video is, presumably somewhat old, and yet at nine in the morning, someone called 911 to report that these two girls had done that and had committed a hate crime. So think about calling 911 because of something that you see on a Facebook post that could be quite old. And so this is a shaming culture, a call-out culture. You have the notion of white guilt. So you have really guilt and shame embedded behind this, to try to shame those who act inappropriately or virtue signaling. Uh, you also have power dynamics. One of these is that there's constant shift in language. If you feel that your feet are unsettled or your mouth is unsettled on exactly what to call a person, not only in the area of sexuality and gender, but even in race, and that the slightest misstep or misuse, then you will be deemed racist. And what it is, is trying to maintain, I believe, uh, uh, to, throw people, to throw people off equilibrium, to maintain uh, chaos so that there might be equity. Equity is, is maintained by some chaos um, or by reverse power. And then you also have a moral asymmetry where the oppressed are justified in their actions. So these people in the picture, you can see that they're carrying bats. Uh, and there's students in Oregon who were, was really upset. Um, this school is very one of the most left schools in North America. That they pride themselves on that. Um, so they were going to have a day of absence. And that meant, and every year they had a day of absence where people of color didn't have to attend school, and all the white students would come and they would learn about white supremacy and the effects of white supremacy on people of color. Uh, so it was very progressive. Well, there, this Jewish professor of science who calls himself deeply progressive, when he felt that something was going a little bit wrong, that it was pushing into this kind of religious orientation. And uh, the day of absence that year, the students wanted it to be where all the white people didn't come to school. 
so that they understood what it was like to be dis to be disempowered. This professor thought that was a bad idea and wanted to dialogue about it. And every year prior, it was voluntary if a person of color wanted to attend. Him. This was considered mandatory for white people not to come. And he felt that this was bad policy and create problems. Well, he came to school and there were lots of shouting, shouting down. And it got to the point where there's a total meltdown of the, of the school where the students were barricading the doors, uh, shouting down the faculty, bringing in their demands on wanting racial equity, the professors losing their cool and losing their nerve, and basically were blaming other professors of racist, racism. And it just became this tempest in a teacup. Professor ended up having to leave the school. So you had this moral asymmetry that because he is representing, and now one of these people who are in the picture says that we need to get rid of people like that. And uh, mind you, she's a white woman talking about a Jewish man. So that brings me to the, my third concern is that it can maintain oppressive structures. That you start judging a person by the color of their skin, by their whiteness. Uh, not necessarily by the content of their character, to quote Martin Luther King. And so judgment can remain skin deep. And what that ends up doing is it creates a superficiality in how you want justice, rather than thinking of what is happening at the heart level. So if it's only at the system level and not at the individual heart level, then it can maintain these oppressive structures that are skin deep. So this is black conservatism. Black conservatism, uh, you would think that uh, this argument for conservatism would only come from white people. But actually, there are strong voices who are black conservatives. Now, as I mentioned earlier, and as I explained a bit later, Kendi would describe these men as racist. So the guy on the left is Thomas Sowell. He's an economist. He's been a professor at um, Ivy League schools. And the guy on the right is Shelby Steele, who is a, an author, and he was a professor at San Jose University or something like that, I can't remember, and wrote a book called The Content of Our Character. And so these men argue that critical race theory is what's wrong. Cultural Marxism is what's wrong in society. Um, now both experience personally segregation, and they both hated segregation. But they both believe that now black people since the civil rights movement have a far more freedom. And that while they consider that racism is still existing in some ways, it is primarily diminished and is primarily found in individuals. So what's their basic argument? Well, they believe that racism exists but greatly diminished. I mean, look, see black men can be CEOs or even president of the United States. Even though they didn't like Obama, but they consider that a symbol and a sign that black people are not, that there's not so much racism, systemic racism, that they can't rise, again, um, rise up. Now, there would be some black liberals who would say, well, Obama was very wealthy, so a poor black person can't rise. But that's part of the argument. And so what ends up happening is Steele, the guy on the right, says that black people were shocked by freedom. Once the civil rights movement afforded them freedom, won them freedom, they were shocked by it and didn't know what to do with it because they had lived for so long with dependency on the state. 
And yes, it was created by the system to make them dependent, but now the civil rights movement freed them to act. And so what ends up happening is that they maintain their dependence when they look for state programs, rather than making choices that will lift them out and even their communities out of poverty. He also criticizes white guilt as uh, not true guilt because it doesn't lead to true social action, but simply it's a public reaction by white people afraid of being considered racist. And so they virtue signal about how sympathetic they are to black people, but they actually don't get involved. They might make a video or make a donation of $500 to some anti-white supremacy group, but not really care about the plight of black people. Soul, the man on the left, argues that along the same lines, black people have been hurt by the great society. In fact, he said that he was a Marxist and no longer is a Marxist. This is a quote by him, how he thinks about political uh, Marxism now. The whole political vision of the left, including socialism and communism, has failed by virtually every empirical test in countries all around the world. But this has only left leftist intellectuals to evade and denigrate empirical evidence. What he's saying there is that he traveled around the world and found that communism and socialism did not work. And it actually worsened race relations. Uh, and he says that he was actually a Marxist until he traveled around the world to see what, what other countries had done so he could bring it to the U.S. and found that actually capitalism was the best thing for race relations. And then he says in the last sentence, but this has only left leftist intellectuals to evade and denigrate empirical evidence is saying that they're anti-science. So what he argues is that he too believes that self-reliance is black power that now the system has freed them to strive. And there's this great confidence in the free market. Sol would say um, that proportionately, if you see black Americans and white Americans at a young age, by the presence, the equal presence of libraries and newspapers and reading in their homes, that their grades are actually equal. And he says that a lot of black Americans are looking for the schools, like through affirmative action, to give them greater ease in order to succeed. But he goes, but this creates a dependency, a mindset that they do not need to lift themselves and they want to blame everyone for not allow, um, for keeping them down independent. He goes, but that's not the case. He goes, you have to be diligent and through effort, you can rise, you can lift yourself up. <clears throat> Or you have James Meredith, who went to Ole Miss. He was the first black American at uh, University of Mississippi. A lot of people didn't understand this, but he's been very consistent through his whole life to say, I wanted to get into university, not on some kind of special permission, but that I had the, free, I had the merit, merit to be there. And I want it to be the case where African-Americans have the freedom to fail in university. Now that's interesting, not the freedom to succeed, the freedom to fail, because then it would be a true meritocracy. But, uh, and so you have the movie Gifted Hands, the story of Ben Carson. That's the kind of narrative you have, where this black American through study and through resilience and diligence didn't get involved in these lifestyles and succeeded. Soul also points importantly that he's saying that when black couples stay married their income and their equity will grow 
But if their family breaks up, then they will hurt their equity. He's saying that there needs to be better lifestyles in the black community and uh, an effort. Okay, some uh, concerns with conservatism. So the argument can be used by white people. So sometimes there can just be complacency of white people. If you, you, can, see, you can see in the background that I have Trump's tweet. When their protests started happening in Minneapolis, uh, Donald Trump texted, any difficulty and we will assume control, but when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Now, Trump says that he was ignorant of the fact that this was stated by a white police officer against civil rights protests in 1967 in Miami. <laughs> so he really knows how to step in the, uh, the cow patties. Some people say, well, what Soul and Steel do end up saying, well, it depends, it's depending on you black people uh, to be self-reliant and to empower yourself. You are strong black people and you can empower yourself to succeed. And what they end up doing is white people go, yeah, yeah, you know, black people need to raise themselves up by their bootstraps. And a lot of black Americans are saying, well, uh, sorry, actually there was redlining and generational wealth gap, there's economic disparity, and we need some help here. And so we have to see that there is, I try to make an argument that there was structural racism, uh, historical racism that has had impact on our structures. Black conservatism can be blamed for white complacency, and we'll see that in the church as well. And then also uh, to recognize that there is residual racism in the system, as we saw with over-policing and economic disparity. Okay, so the simple gospel. So the first two were two secular, secular ideologies, one calling for more government, more programs, and where black conservatism is more self-reliant. It's almost the, the classic liberal conservative divide, which is happening amongst the black community. Well, here are two Christian uh, orientations. Now, some Christians have said that we need to, uh, you know, uh, Robert Jeffries, he tweeted that without the change of the heart, uh, none, of, none of this protest and all this will be of no good. What he's implying is that what they need to do is uh, just come to the churches and hear preaching of the gospel and their hearts will be changed and that is where everything will go better. And so there's a focus on the individual and not on the structure. Now, some people would say that that, that maintains complacency. That if you focus on the on, only on the heart and not on the structural evils, dominions and powers of this world, then you can end up, or they, as they say, silence is violence. Jamar Tisby wrote a book called The Color of Compromise. I recommend that, and we've just ordered it. We'll have it here. And it's a history of how the church, the white Protestant church, has been complicit in racism, um, oftentimes by preaching the simple gospel. They preach the simple gospel, but that is a way of being complacent about structural problems and issues that black Americans were facing. White Protestant churches were very upset about Martin Luther King Jr. You hear about him in the pulpits these days, but he was considered an agitator, agitator of the peace, a communist, a Marxist. And yet we can see in light of current Marxism that it's quite different. Protestant churches saw Martin Luther King as a social agitator of the peace. And yet, if we look back in time, that he was actually fighting as a Christian against structural or systemic evil. 
And sometimes people want to hear just the simple gospel because they are afraid of what is called the social gospel. Now, the social gospel was something in the 20s where the churches were really trying to, and even before the 20s, to establish God's kingdom on earth. So they were doing a lot of charitable work with orphans and with with black uh, Americans, poverty issues, and they were doing a lot of great work. But people felt that it became all about trying to establish the kingdom of God on earth rather than looking for God's spirit to be at work in his people and transforming society through that. And so there was some concern, but I want to dispel uh, some of that concern through the whole gospel. And so this is my fourth. Because what you can have with the simple gospel, you might have the forgiveness of sins, but we forget about the forgiveness of debts. In this, I just want to give a quick overview of how to look at race relationships and racial reconciliation through the lens of Scripture. Most of the time, if we are at all thinking about race and racial reconciliation, there's two, two reference points at the beginning and the end of the Bible, that God created all people equally, and that uh, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that all nations, tribes, and languages will be praising God. And so you have the sense that all races will be praising God and that all people are made equal. Now, that's very powerful and that the Bible, that that's something that the church needs to be mindful of. But sometimes even just preaching that as a part of the gospel and not attending to structural problems in society can make the, lo- the church look like it's preaching an anemic gospel and that the church becomes complicit and complacent by not looking at how the Bible is addressing even race between the end and the, um, between the beginning and the end. So what you see is that uh, you don't have the word race show up, really. The Jews were the chosen race out of all the nations of the world, but they were chosen in, in order to bless the nations. Uh, the Greek word is ethnos, where we get the word ethnicity. And so the Jewish people were called not because they were superior. In fact, they were of no account in the world's account. Uh, But God chose them to demonstrate his grace to them and through them for, for the nations. Now, how did he do this? Well, he gave them a law. Now, when we think of the law, we often think, okay, the Old Testament is about the law, where they had to follow rules, and the New Testament is about freedom and grace and love. But that diminishes the complexity of what happened. When God gave them the law, he was not giving them arbitrary law. He was not just wanting to see how high they could jump and know that they could fail and then condemn them for it. Actually, he created a code, a constitution, that was to set them apart among the nations so that they might bring justice to their own people and to the nations around them in a culturally accommodating way. That's what the law did. And so that's, uh, and so really we can even look at the law as Christians today and see that it's a code of ethics. Do not kill. Uh, Welcome the immigrant in your land. This land is not yours. It's the land I gave you. So welcome the foreigner. Uh, Welcome them into your midst. Uh, Give rest to your maidservant and manservant and to your animals. Uh, Treat the land in such a way. And so it's really a code of ethics. And it's the code of ethics that set them apart 
of what God is trying to do through them for the world. But what ended up happening is that Israel kind of took this as a possession, that what God gave them was a possession. And they segregated themselves rather than set themselves apart to bless the nations. They segregated themselves. But at the same time, they wanted to have political allies and they failed to live into the law that set them apart because the law that set them apart was to set them apart in order to bless the nations. But by taking it as a possession, it made them to feel that the blessings were all theirs. And they had this dream where all the nations would kind of bend the knee to them. But you had through the prophets and even in the law, there was a promise of the incorporation of other nations. And so Isaiah was saying that there would be a king that would come that would fulfill the law to bring all races, all nations into Israel so that all would be blessed, that all his creation would flourish. But you have where um, Jesus comes and he, and you just think about how he acts through race relations. Uh, the Samaritans were considered biracial, mixed, where these oppressors had bred with the Jewish people and they were considered kind of, they were these people that were not as clean or as pure as they were. And yet Jesus goes to this woman at the well and engages her and stays three days in this biracial area, not considering them unclean, but making them clean. Uh, and announcing his kingdom. Uh, he heals a Roman centurion, a soldier, one who represents the oppressor, and yet heals his servant, his slave. And then also the Greeks start to come and wanting to hear about Jesus, and Jesus says, let them come. So you have this racial reconciliation happening on the level, and even having tax collectors and sinners, a part of this is having some Gentile interest. Now Jesus was bringing the blessing, and he said the salvation has to come to Israel so that it might come through Israel, but for all races, all nations. And so what ends up happening, that when God breathes, uh, when Jesus ascends, the Spirit is sent, it falls on all these disciples, and they all speak in their own language, yet all of them are heard. It doesn't say that they're all speaking the same language, but they're all speaking their own language, yet they are one. And so this is a picture of racial reconciliation, nations being reconciled to one another. And so Peter really struggles with the idea because the word nation or ethnicity is the word Gentile in the Bible. Gentile means nations. When Peter has his vision of this blanket with pork on it or a pig, he's like, well, I won't eat that because that's unclean. And he goes, don't call it, God says, don't call anything that I've made unclean. Then he goes to Cornelius' house, who's a God-fearing Gentile, and, the, he, and the, through the preaching of the word, this guy receives the Spirit, and Peter becomes convinced that, yes, even the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. And so it's this amazing eye-opening event. And then Paul, he becomes the preacher to the Gentiles. But Peter himself backs away, shies off. And so you have this tension of race relations happening in the Bible. It's not explicit, but if you understand race through the whole Bible, you see that this, there are racial tensions inherent to this. It's not just dietary codes, but racial tensions. 
And so you see that in Galatians and Ephesians. So there's a wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile, the chosen race and all the other nations. And so I want to read Ephesians 2 and Galatians 2, but I'm going to read a translation that has been done by a guy named Clarence Jordan. So the picture that you see behind them are farmers, black and white farmers. And I'll mention Koinonia Farms in a minute, but Clarence Jordan was a Greek scholar and translated the Bible, Paul's letters, in light of 1960s uh, race relations in the Deep South. Because he's from rural Georgia, Greek scholar, and wants to make the Bible applicable to race relations. And so he translates the Bible in order to speak to race relations. But I think he remains true. And so it's called the Cotton Patch uh, version of Paul's epistles. And so I'm going to read these two, but through the Cotton Patch version. What you need to know is that he's considering Jewish people as white, the white people. He's considering the law, the Southern way of life, the white custom of life, and Gentiles as Negroes or black, Amer black people being incorporated into this community but not being incorporated into the Southern way of life, not being incorporated into whiteness, but being incorporated into a new reality, a new vision of how, uh, how races are equal side by side in Christ. So it's not just that they cannot either segregate or assimilate, but they need to be a new people. So let me read this. I'm not going to, uh, there is the N-word. Uh, I'll just say um, N-word. So this is Ephesians 2, verse 11, from Clarence Jordan's Cotton Patch version of Paul's epistles, through verse 22. So then, always remember that previously you Negroes, who sometimes are even called inward by thoughtless white church members, were at one time outside the Christian fellowship, denied your rights as fellow believers, and treated as though the gospel didn't apply to you, hopeless and God-forsaken in the eyes of the world. Now, however, because of Christ's supreme sacrifice, you who were once so segregated are warmly welcomed into Christian fellowship. He himself is our peace. It is he who integrated us and abolished the segregation patterns which caused so much hostility to be sensitive. He allowed no silly traditions and customs in his fellowship so that in it he might integrate the two into one new body. In this, he healed the hurt and by his sacrifice on the cross, he joined together both sides into one body for God. In it, the hostility no longer, no longer exists. So what he's saying there is that these black people are being incorporated into white relationships. Now, the white relationships have power, but he's not saying you're not being integrated into the white way of life. You're being integrated into Christian fellowship, of which the only only way into this pure fellowship of racial reconciliation has to come through Christ, not with one having to kowtow to the other. And then you have Clarence Jordan translate Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. And this is where Paul is confronting Peter. Now he calls, <laughs> uh, he nicknames these people, so he calls Peter Rock, and he calls Barnabas Barney. And he calls John or James Jim, okay? <laughs> oh, so the letter is written to Atlanta, not to Galatia. 
In spite of all this, when Rock came to Albany, I had to rebuke him to his face because he was clearly in error. For before the committee appointed by Jim arrived, he was eating with Negroes. But when they came, he shrank back and segregated himself because he was afraid of the whites. He even got the rest of the white liberals to play the hypocrite with him so that even Barney was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not planting their feet firmly in the truth of the gospel, I said to Rock right in front of everybody, if you, a white man, have freely accepted integration and not segregation, how do you now compel Negroes to accept white customs? Here we are, white people by birth and not inferior inward. And yet we know that a man can't get right with God just by walking in our Southern way of life. It is only as we live uh, the way of Christ Jesus. Now all of us have put our faith in Christ Jesus so as to be made right by our Christian faith and not by our Southern traditions or by our whiteness because custom never made a saint out of anyone. Now, if in our struggle to be true to Christ, we ourselves wind up segregated, does that make Christ a party to segregation? Heavens no. What he's saying is that uh, just because they're being separated or segregated, it's not that they chose segregation. It's that they're being segregated because uh, the white people are afraid of the pollution of racial reconciliation. So he's like, so is Christ for segregation that we're being segregated by these people? No, that's not, they're, they're, that's not the point. But if I try to rebuild a wicked system, which I've already knocked down, then I may consider myself a violator. For so far as the Southern way is concerned, I died. So I could be alive toward God. I was strung up with Christ. So he sees Christ as lynched to have solidarity with the black community. I'm no longer alive. It is Christ who lives in me. This physical life, which I now have, it is simply an expression of my faith in God's son who loved me and gave himself for me. I dare not reject God's unmerited favor, for if getting right with God is a matter of observing traditions, then Christ had no business dying. So anyway, I could keep going. I love that uh, translation, particularly coming from the Deep South myself. But what you have is this powerful example. It's not segregation. It's not assimilation. But it is a new way of life in Christ. And so I think that this is a powerful witness to the church that the simple, it's not just a simple gospel of hearts being converted, sins being forgiven, but that there is the pursuit of changing of hearts, being called into Christ, but through that making change. And so this is my final point for, I, I just give some ways forward or examples of ways forward, practical how-to examples, is that Paul and Peter were preaching the gospel that these, that these hearts would be converted, that their transformation would be internal, yet it had implications for how they related to one another within the community. Uh, so as Clarence Jordan, black, uh, blacks and whites, but Jews and Gentiles, it was a radical reformation or transformation of how they were to relate to one another in Christ. But that had social implications. I mean, remember when in Acts, the Hellenized Jewish widows were not being cared for because they were Hellenized. They were lesser than. They were inferior. And Paul says, no, we have to care for them. He says that his main drive is to care for the poor. 
And so through this social, this communal transformation, it started leading to social transformation in society. I mean, Paul was not just quietly at a church. He was walking in the streets and wherever he preached, riots followed him. And that's why he kept being put in prison because riots were against the law in Rome and they would squash them, law and order. And Paul would be put in prison because he's preaching the gospel and the powers that be recognized that it was costly to them and that um, what he was starting would destabilize uh, the powers. So I think that Clarence, you know, Clarence Jordan was this guy who in the 20s recognized that he had, that the gospel had to apply to black churches or black people as well. And what white Christians did in the 20s and 30s thought you should preach the gospel to black people, but maintain their segregation, that they should become good black Christians in their black churches, where white Christians should be good white Christians in their white churches. Um, but he thought that that was not right. And he goes, and so there was a lot of power struggle. So what he did is that he wanted, he and this man from Louis, he studied in Louisville, Kentucky, went to seminary. He also studied agriculture. And this man, he's one of my new heroes, is that he wanted to find where the ratio of African-Americans was higher than whites and where the land was most depleted throughout the South. And he found some farms in Alabama, but then found one in rural Georgia. And he, he and this, uh, this wealthy man supported him and bought a 400-acre property so that he could welcome, uh, so he could preach the gospel, welcome African-Americans, and that they could become community together. And what he wanted to do is, in order to not have economic inequality, he wanted to have a common pot like you see in Acts 2 and Acts 4. So there was economic and racial equality in, in the farms. And it was to be an example and a witness to Christians around them. But what ended up happening is people thought they were social agitators and they even tried to bomb the farm, even though this guy was simply trying to live out the gospel in that expression. So we need to not have white guilt. We need to have godly grief. What is it? And godly grief is one that leads to repentance. This is Jamar Tisby's phrase, that white guilt is only a show of feeling bad, but not doing anything, maybe doing blacking out your Facebook post, um, saying that you're in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, but do nothing else, and that life just carries on. Jamar Tisby says, no, we need to have godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to life. And I think a great example of that is Myra Odwell. She's a woman that was from Mississippi, and came to British Columbia decades ago, and someone asked her to come and speak on Mississippi burning, and to say, um, is it really that bad in Mississippi? And she thought that the film exaggerated race relations because she had lots of good black friends. But afterwards, she, um, the students started thinking that her memory was nostalgic and not real, and thought that she was misunderstood that she had privilege and disprivileged black people and she wanted to disprove them so she went down to mississippi and made a film about it called mississippi remixed to wonder if she had white privilege or not and she discovered that in fact she had lots of privilege her father had had done racist things intentionally and she had a maid and didn't even recognize 
that uh, although the maid was in her, in her house and she never even thought that maybe she was taking this black woman away from her family or the conditions of the house that she lived in, which ended up becoming a little shanty that was a shanty. And so Mississippi Remix is a wonderful story of how she humbles herself and decides that maybe I've been more privileged than I thought, but through a Christian perspective. You have Dolphus Weary, a black preacher. He basically started prayer groups where black churches and white churches were praying together, but all the black members had to drive to white neighborhoods and white churches to pray. And then the white people had to come to the black neighborhoods and pray in the black churches as a way of reconciliation. I would encourage you to, to look at The Witness, the Black Christian Collective. And there is a podcast that they do called Pass the Mic. And so it's looking at black current issues or current issues through black perspective. Find out the history where you're located and be an educated voter. These are just small ways, but I would encourage you to look at Jamar Tisby's lecture on how to fight racism. Okay, so that's where I end. So let's have some conversations. Yes, Brett. Marvelous uh, lecture. Mark, thank you so much for all the work you put into that and for just, there's a very creative and very helpful way of amassing everything and all the various uh, complications, very complex, but yes. I think you did a fantastic job. Thank you. Well, I want to add one further dimension, which comes from my friend George Kavur, who is from India, so he's brown, mm -hmm. and he always challenges, whenever the issue comes up, he challenges the concept of race. He says oh. that there are not many races, there is one human race. Yeah. So I wonder if even, no matter what side of the equation you come on, the idea of actually calling another person from another race, yeah. we are from the same race. So if you, if you, if you, if you actually use the word race, yes. are you not endangering by actually putting somebody in a different biological category? So, so, anyway. so the question is, is, is term race, if I use the word races or make it multiple, doesn't that put us in danger of tending toward racism? And isn't it better to say human race as a universal? And this is a comment from a brown person from, from India. From India. Who is, um, who gently but firmly uh, emphasizes the evils of colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. I would say yes and no. I think that one... It is important to see human race as the first aspect and that human race is that we all belong. You know, Paul says um, we all have one father. We all kneel before one father, our creator. So in that sense, it's true. But, you know, some people would argue that color blindness is race racist and that if you don't see color, then you end up defaulting to whatever position of power is in place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, George, George isn't minimizing that. I mean, uh, I, I, agree, I agree with you totally. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's not how, but he's saying that this is a dangerous precedent because it, it, it opens up a whole new other kind of room. I see. I mean, how, what would he make of Revelation 7 verse 9 where it talks about the many nations and tongues and tribes. Right, that's uh, fine, yeah. but it's but it's one human race biologically. Uh, yes, 
You see, one race is not inferior to the other because we're not two races. We are one human race. I see. So maybe the word race itself, and maybe we should use a different word like tribes or nations right, right. or people groups. I mean, this is, I, I think, what he would say. I mean, I'm putting it in his mind, but I think that's why he would make that comment. And, and I've never heard it come up. But of course, everybody talks about racialism and it's using the word race. I think we, we all know what it means, ethnic peoples. But it's, it is interesting that race denotes a biological entity. Hmm. Okay, That's good. I, I don't have anything to add. Does anyone? Uh, looks, Greg, looks like you unmuted yourself. Is that for a question? Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting to talk. I mean, like, I've, always, I've realized for a long time that I've led a, as, as, probably as, as privileged a life as anybody's ever lived. You know, really, and part of and part of that privilege has been because I'm I'm male, uh, because I'm white, and all these various things. But thing did occur to me too that it sort of didn't come up is that your the redlining thing, which was not a term I was familiar with, but it sounds very much like what we've done in Canada, you know, with our First Nations people putting them off, you know, like redlining them into reservations and whatnot, and getting them, you know, so they're in our hair and they don't get in our way and. You know, you live your life and we'll live ours and uh, so on and so forth and then throw money at the problem. And so I, I, I think that's, I think there's a strong parallel. I mean, there's differences, but I think there's a strong parallel between that whole idea of redlining that you talked about and what we've done to our First Nations people in, in Canada. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that Canadians need to be very mindful. And that's part of the conviction I've had is how do I think about First Nations communities? I mean, I grew up around black Americans and I grew up in a city that was 60% black. I had lots of relationships and friendships. And so in some way, this, this study has made me very empathetic and wanting to understand better. And because in a way, it's still somewhat familiar to me, but not in a way that First Nations are. I don't have any really familiarity with First Nations ways outside of some art and some you know very stereotypical kind of customs but i don't know their way of life their religion the way the symbols and so i feel quite convicted i need to know more about first nations around here just as a fellow human being um, yeah, it's, it's kind of difficult at times so because we we do we are kind of isolated from our first nations people that live just right down the street that's it's right, and you can see that impoverishment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, I was, Clark, I, I want to say I thank you very much for that uh, talk. I thought it was an excellent talk, and uh, knowing you, knowing that you come from the South, I, I see it as very apropos. Um, but had I not known your background, had I not known your personal history, I would have said that it was a very Canadian talk, and it's <laughs> pointing, it's, you know, it's, it's looking across the border at um, issues of, of those crazy Americans um, and, and not looking up here. As a Canadian, I, I take on that um, philosophy of sins of the fathers, but I don't hold you know, when I, when I think about my systemic guilt for George Floyd or my systemic guilt 
involving Robert E. Lee, I feel zero. Not a, not, not a little zero, nothing, nada. I am not an American. I am not responsible for any of that. I bear no responsibility at all. But I do bear responsibility for basically the, the, the colonization of British Columbia illegally past the Douglas Treaties. I do bear responsibility for the flooding of villages in the 1970s up in Fort St. John building WAC Bennett Dam. I do bear responsibility um, for the uh, residential school residential school system that uh, came about due to the Gradual Civilization Act in 1853, um, architected by uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, and who's, um, who is the founding father of my country. Right. Um, and, and I do have nuanced and strong opinions about um, statues and money and representations of Sir John A. Macdonald because I do think that he is my the founding father of my country, and I do recognize that there, there are scenes involved with that, so I have a mixed feeling about that. So I, 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 do, I do feel that. Um, and, and Asian races, that's right, um, you know, the, the $100 head tax of the Asians coming in. So, um, but this is something that I, I will try and correct Canadians on, because Sometimes they will look at George Floyd and say, look how racist we are. And I will say, that's not us. Look to your own backyard. That's not us. We are not those people. Those are the Americans. We broke political ties. I know that. <laughs> so that's, so that, that's sort of, that's one of the things that I look to. Um, just to, this is a point of clarification. No, that, that's <laughs> good. And this is... That's right. And so I wanted to speak about it. Uh, one, because I'm an American from the Deep South. Two, I've had lots of people ask me questions about what I think. And, uh, and there's quite a few Americans that listen to our podcast. I felt that maybe this would be a good venue in which to express mm -hmm. what is happening. Uh, and it's enabled me to speak somewhat because I'm from I'm, I'm living in Canada been living in Canada looking at it from afar but having had personal experience because I know that there's a lot of Americans who don't want to touch this with the 10-foot pole because it's so controversial it's so contentious and it's the here and now but I do think that it is important for Christians to speak uh, and to have a Christian voice and to have an American voice even though we are Canadian Labrie uh, there's a lot of American, yeah. American influence or touching Americans from this perspective. But I also thought it's instructive, like you said very well and articulately, about how we need to tend to our own backyard. And hopefully that this talk will lead us to think about our own backyard. But I think that's really difficult to do. But, but thank you for that. Uh, I, I don't think we can separate ourselves from the Americans that way. I just, I mean, when I, when I grew up, I know for like it was illegal to serve alcohol to a First Nations person, you know, and frankly, I didn't think much about it. You know, I was 20 years old and so on. And it, I, I didn't even realize that the residential schools were still going on. 
And it, there was this there was this racist undertone that I didn't even know existed. It just seemed the way things were. And if I think I was growing up in the 1800s in Alabama, I don't think I'd have been any different than anybody else down there. So, I, you know, I th think, you know, we have race in, as to where we are. And I don't think we can separate ourselves from the Americans because, I, it's just, you know, it's just a matter of individual circumstances. And I, I think we're just, you know, we're, you know, like Brett was talking about, you know, we're, it's, it's, we're all the human race. You know, maybe, maybe instead of Black Lives, lives Matter, it should be All Lives Matter. But I understand it's dealing with a specific issue right now. Yeah. Anyone else? I don't. Can you hear me? It's Gary speaking. Hey, Gary. Yes, I can. I can see you too. Yeah. Okay. I uh, grew up um, going up to Bella Bella when I was 14. I went there every summer to work at the hospital. So I lived on the reserve for 14 years, took a year out of university, and and uh, I spent the whole year there. So I, I had a lot of firsthand uh, experience as a, as a teenager living on a reserve. Mm. Um, and um, I used to get very angry with some of the attitudes that uh, I saw among some of the white fishermen. Mm. And uh, in taking advantage of the local girls, the uh, boat that would take people back and forth, the well, Union Steamships, their successor, at uh, one point refused to come into the wharf and I had to take people out onto the, and load them onto the uh, big ship midstream from a little boat and uh, had to do that even with patients. Mm. Some of them were on stretchers mm. because they refused to come into the, into the war. So I got really very angry. I used to, I used to come out when the tourists are leaning over to see this, Oh, this neat thing. Oh, coming alongside or loading people onto it from, and I would, stand there and give a lecture to the captain. He got so he wouldn't even look over the rail anyway. <laughs> but I would give the whole spiel so that all the tourists would hear what they were doing, and which was unjust and unfair and mm. ill-treating people. Mm. So when I went to university uh, in 1958, I then took a year out. So when I went back in, in 50 or 60, I guess it was, there were 15 First Nation students at University of British Columbia. Total 15 out of a population of 15,000. So I was involved with a group of us. Some of us were, well, there was maybe a 10 or so of us that got together. Some of them were from the anthropology department, one or two of the profs, history department. And we started a club for uh, First Nations folk. They had never met of these 15, they had never met one another. They're on this whole campus, you know. Huh. And so we started a club and then it came down one of the issues with what do we call this club? Not gonna call it the Indian club. So we discussed this with the, with those 15 or with, yeah, with those uh, nine, I should say, those nine uh, First Nations. One of whom was Richard Atlio, as a matter of fact. But, um, who later became one of the Grand Chiefs. So what we came up with was Native Canadian Fellowship. I mean, we decided, we rang all kind of Aboriginal, you know, what do we call it? First Nations was not a word that we even thought of at those times, but 
it was a Native Canadian fellowship. So one of one of the things that UBC always did was there would be a week of um, ethnic um, groups um, or festivals sort of thing. So there would be dances and there would be feasts down at the International House and various things. But so we organized the First Nations one. And we had uh, Steve, uh, uh, George Cludesy, he's a, he was a painter, Emily Carr taught him. Um, there were various, uh, uh, Chief Hatsilano, which Kitsilano in Vancouver, he lived on Kitsilano Beach, Hatsilano, Chief Hatsilano. <laughs> he lived there until in the, in, into the 60s, then he moved over to the North Shore. But he came, he was quite an old man at that point, and we had, uh, oh, various other um, people who were artists, uh, Chief, Jan Chief Dan George, his son, came and danced. And so we, did, we spent a whole week doing that. We organized one lecture and we had the Indian Affairs Department to send a, a, a person to speak. And we had advertised on campus, got a pretty good number out. I think there were probably three or 400 students. Mm. The guy got up, he was a total jerk. We all thought he was drunk. We all, our hearts just sunk. Mm. This is what is our government can do. They've, you know, we've organized this. This is an opportunity to speak to some issues. Had a lot of, uh, and I remember at that time we met with a, an MLA and it was what opened up to me that I hadn't, a fact I hadn't realized this would have been in the early 60s. He said, BC is going to pay the price in the future because of the unsettled land claims. Mm. There's no, as opposed to the rest of Canada. So it's been an issue that I've been aware of and we've ha I've had lots of First Nations friends over the years and, and uh, but I, but, you know, I remember talking to some of the young men that were uh, at Bella Bella at that time, and they were saying, you know, we fought in the war, but we can't vote. Mm. I, you know, and, yeah. Mm. It's, an, it's a legacy that we live with. Yeah. Mm. Thank you very much. I mean, that's mm. so appropriate for... Um, for all of us here, particularly in this Canadian context. And, uh... and I might say that the reserve was, um, the hospital was run by the United Church. Mm -hmm. And so the doctor was Dr. Darby. He was 45 years, a missionary doctor there. For most of those years, he was the only physician for that whole area of the coast. And uh, um, a godly man, um, mm. who tried, I mean, I, I remember, I was putting kids on the boat that was taking the residential schools. I didn't even know, you know, they couldn't go to high school in Bella Bella. They had to go somewhere. For me at that time, I thought that sounds, makes sense. And, and those kids looked happy when they were getting on the boats, usually mm. had new clothes and they were usually pretty excited. But, and again, I would sometimes have to go out with the small boat and load them in midstream. Mm. Anyway. Wow. And, uh, Brett, did you want to say something? Yeah, just, uh, yeah, what, 
It is. Um, and so what do you think about Christian's relationship or the church relationship to, uh, to uh, well, nations? Well, it's, it's a complicated issue. I mean, here is a doctor who gave his life in outpouring of compassion. Every time he prayed, he would always say, thank you, Lord, for the opportunities of service today. And I'm thinking, this guy's 24-7? And he's, he's thankful for the service that he gets called on every day, all hours of the night and day. <laughs> so, so it's complicated. There were those saints, but there were also those who were not saints. And United Church, uh, I mean, what, what happened was that the church has basically divided the B.C. coast up. So you had the Catholics on the west coast of Vancouver Island. You had the Anglicans on the lower inside passage. Then you had, uh, um, well, I guess they were Methodists originally, and then in the United Church. And then further north, you had Salvation Army around uh, um, Prince Rupert in that area. Duncan there was who, who developed this um, Metlacatla. You may have heard that. If you go to the BC Rural Museum, they have pictures of Metlacatla. Now, they're derogatory about him. He was a missionary. Um, they're derogatory, but uh, because he was trying to make them into little white communities <laughs> with white buildings and uh, big brass bands and all of that sort of stuff. <laughs> but uh, but at the same time, he he would he fought the traders who were exploiting the First Nations. So he built a boat so he, they could bring some of their things, trade goods, to Victoria where they could get good prices. Mm. So, and, and he taught them how to make soap when you know, the, the traders were selling soap at exorbitant prices. So there's a, there's a mixed, it, it's not simple. <laughs> but most of life is not simple. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, uh, Brett. Did you? Yeah, just one resource which we've seen in our parish on the National Anglican Church of Canada website. Uh, it's called The Doctrine of Discovery, and it really helps. It's a very good, uh, well-made, hour-long uh, movie, a film, a mm -hmm. documentary, and it gives the background to the Doctrine of Discovery and helps us understand the roots of some of the of our approach in our own society here yeah. uh, in in Canada. It's it's just a very helpful just to, to help reorient your mind and to help us to uh, change the direction in which things have been going. That's very good. Doctrine of Discovery. Okay, thank you. Well, good. Uh, uh, this is Fred, could I say something? Fred, please do. Uh, uh, the, the current conversation, the color content of the current conversation is, is our content. When we look at the history of uh, human relations across the world and across the centuries, uh, German Jews were white. Uh, the, the African nations that kill each other are all black. Uh, so the uh, suppression of, of the poor whites in America uh, are done by white whites, you know, rich whites. So, so the color content is confusing and distracting, I think. Across the centuries, the, the harassment of one community against another is not color-coded. I see. The harassment of 
one black nation against another, it's us black to black. So the, it's, not, it's not a color, it's not primarily a color issue. It, no, that, it's not. You're right. So, you know, the call of white supremacy, I think that some people would say that there is an argument that lighter skin across societies have usually had higher value or power throughout transculturally and throughout history. However, uh, racism is not simply whiteness versus blackness or whiteness versus people of color because racism can be expressed, as you said, people of color versus white or white versus people of color or the Germans against the Jews. Uh, yeah, African countries in civil war. There's all forms of, of, you're right. So it's not just color coded, but I, I was using whiteness and blackness in relation to the US particularly. Exactly, it's our conversation. See, I myself, my own people have experienced harassment from Ottawa uh, against our communities in Manitoba. Mm. Uh, we were just as white as they were. Mm. So yeah. it's that's so I get uncomfortable when, when the conversation is primarily color coded. That's, that's a good point. No, thank you. That's very helpful. That uh, yeah, and I wasn't trying to suggest that. Uh, I was just trying to speak from the specific context in the conversations that are mm -hmm. happening right now. But you're right. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Okay, is there anyone else? Cliff, did you want to say something? Well, yeah, it just seems to me that uh, racism sometimes expresses itself in terms of indifference and neglect. You know, I'm, I'm calling here from Peru and just thinking about the, uh, the indigenous people that I've um, been uh, aware with and aware of here and the problems that are, are caused by uh, not consulting with how their land is being used and some are in remote areas and they're suffering a lot from contamination from extractive mm -hmm. industries, mm -hmm. uh, but they're largely neglected by the government and people in general. Mm -hmm. And so that's, mm. that's something that uh, is systemic. And it has the history of colonization there? Yeah, well, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Spanish. But yeah, it's uh, it's pretty pretty raw here still. Hmm. Are there uh, is are there protests or is there conflict or is it more quiet as it is in yeah, Well, no, there. I mean, there's a lot of protests and and. And just like in North America, there were so many treaties that were made and were never kept. Mm -hmm. uh, here, the government makes lots of agreements after some protests occur, and and uh, the uh, in, indigenous groups get the government's attention by blocking roads or blocking waterways and so forth. They'll make agreements, but then they they never follow through with them. You know, it's, a, it's a great lack of respect as well. Thinking about how um, the, 
the racism isn't always expressed as violence, like what happened in the U.S. and in the inner city. Um, that that kind of physical violence is it's a lot of neglect and environmental violence, or 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 uh, you know destruction of people's lives in terms of their food and water their crops yeah well thank you that's a good perspective to have um or awareness to have for us i mean i guess it it happens in every country i mean it's (laughs) it's a human problem yeah 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 and you know i've been uh traveling around latin america for about 20 years and and living here for the past five years and you know there's just so much so much injustice is being done you know uh, usually against disadvantaged groups like the indigenous people here that that uh, we in North America and uh, really don't hear much about and yet we're we're uh, participating in it because uh, you know some of the, a lot of this destruction is done for extractive purposes like uh, in the upper Amazon where I've been uh, working as a volunteer um, there's a lot of oil export exploitation and uh, mining. So, uh, so the you know the oil that we use and the, the products that we buy that have metals have all these consequences around it's the world. Not only internal uh, exploitation and racism, but you see that. I guess there's also the self-interest that you see with. You know, there's probably the pressures of the U.S. and Iran and China and uh, and all these global pressures that are actually putting a pressure on a nation that puts pressures on those various groups. And uh, you know, like I said, that Kindy guy uh, said that um, it's about it's more about self-interest than necessarily personal animosity. Right. But, but you know, as, as far as the idea of systemic racism, I mean, we're all participating in this system. It's exploiting the earth and, you know, uh, hurting a lot of people in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Through all this consumption that we do. Yeah. Thanks for that, Cliff. Okay, is anyone else want to say anything? All right, we'll call it to a close. Thanks, everybody, for uh, Zooming in.